Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome, everybody. My name is Gabby Hefesi. I'm Managing Director of ACG Analytics. I am joined today by John Turek, our Central Bank Analyst, and Larry McDonald, New York Times bestselling author and founder of the Bear Traps Report. So we wanted to take some time today to kind of take a step back and talk about our view through a macroeconomic lens of central bank policy, what that's doing to the dollar, what's going on with inflation, fiscal policy in the U.S., and how that's affecting markets and commodities, kind of tying it all together. It sounds like a lot. It is a lot. We're hoping that the three of us will kind of have a discussion and get through all these topics. So to start, I think the real story, what both of you write about a lot is the dollar and, you know, the Fed kind of controlling the dollar in a bit and how that flows into all of the stories that are happening around the world. So we're moving through Q2. So I want to hand it over to Larry first with kind of what you've been talking about in this thesis that's been brewing for several months now. Thank you, Gabby. And it's, it's great to be with you guys. I always appreciate our calls. And, um, you know, I like to look forward, but just to recap the thesis, the 2013, 2016, 2018 Fed essentially blew up the global economy three times. And when COVID hit, it, it was such a damaging element to not just the U.S., but worse to the rest of the world, especially emerging markets. They were really their backs were against the wall. And they had to this cycle come up with a new monetary regime, not just around a social justice Fed, which means more accommodation in the United States, but letting uh, other central banks around the world and lead the way out. Whereas in the previous cycle, the U.S. was kind of the alpha male and you know, continuously was the lead horse to pull back accommodation. And when you do that, when you pull back accommodation, your currency will strengthen, especially when the rest of the world is, is offering more accommodation. You know, so here, it's, it's pretty obvious. And John Turk's been all over this six, nine months ago. But that's kind of the, the way back. The way forward is, I think, we're just moving into another engine of this, another ending of this. But I want to turn it over to John uh, quickly in terms of you know, your latest take on, on the thesis and then your look forward. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think kind of where we were was, you know, we've had this pretty, you know, significant turn that was formalized in September in terms of the Fed and kind of how they're going to approach monetary policy going forward. And it's going to be a look back approach as opposed to a look forward approach. And for the Fed going in the past, it was we think that X and Y is going to happen. And this is how we're going to react. And now the Fed going forward is going to be much more looking back on what has happened. And that is going to be their guidepost in terms of setting policy. And this sets up an economic cycle that probably has a lot more volatility, but also has a lot more juice in the sense that the Fed won't be there to cut it off at the knees just as it's getting going. And that was very prevalent last cycle where you know, inflation was getting close to two. And that was kind of the trigger for the Fed to begin removing accommodation. And kind of looking where we are now, we're already seeing inflation that's obviously at two for, you know, more so transitory reasons, but it's clearly going to be durably at two for a while. And the Fed is going to stand pat, at least according to their forecast for the next few years. And I think, you know, that the outlet for that is, is a weaker currency. And, you know, 
the kind of benefits of that is a lot, as we know, the dollar and Fed policy is a huge international financial channel to it. And I think that's going to be the bigger beneficiary this time around. So what you're saying is, just to clarify, is as before the Fed would preempt using their forecast policies and act before they saw it because they saw it coming, whereas now they're more, I'll believe it when I see it, and that it's proven to me that it's not transitory, and in that they're the last force in the global kind of central bank ecosystem, which then will lead to the weaker dollar. Is that what you are saying here? Yeah, that's a good summary. I also think there's another element. There's that, that they will be kind of the last actor this time around as they have more so formalized this reaction function more than others, but also that, you know, the U.S. economy being very demand consumption based as that kind of builds, you know, there's a current account trade deficit leakage that happens where if there's not a commensurate rise in interest rates relative to the pace of economic growth, that that kind of leaves the economy via, you know, more robust demand. And I think that's kind of what we're setting up for in a lower interest rate, higher nominal growth world. So we have some questions here. So why don't we start just answer one of them to get a little bit out of the queue. So how soon should we expect to hear commentary from the Fed about yield curve control? And how would they communicate that message to the market? How do they sell this to the market at a time where most believe their next major move is to taper? I'm going to start with Larry on that one. My whole point on yield curve control is that when the whole world is looking at a taper, right, all they have to do is just do what Rich Clarida did last week. I mean, the whole world is looking at taper talk, and he starts talking about the wonders of the benefits of operation type twists mechanisms. And so that's so I'm not saying there's going to be like yield curve control tomorrow, but right after Rich Clarida spoke, the dollar was off like 50, 60 basis points. It's just like if you're a global investor and you're seeing all this five-year, five-year forward inflation expectations went up to the highest level in you know many, many years. So everybody's expecting this taper stuff. And then whether it be Williams or Clarida, you know, the, the Fed inner circle, in my mind, is Brainerd, Williams, Clarida. That inner circle keeps just, they're not going down the taper road. They're, they're starting to talk about twist type measures, which is like the, the first step toward a yield curve control. So that's, that's my only point is that they don't have to bring it out. But if they comment on it, white papers, this type of thing they did, did last week, they will weaken the dollar dramatically because you have the Bank of Canada out there tapering. You have the Bank of England talk, talking about a potential taper. You have the Bank, Central Bank of China, the BBOC is, is far more hawkish. So you've got all these central banks that are you know much more hawkish than the Fed pulling back a combination that weakens the dollar. But what, what was your take on Clara's speech last week? I don't think that they're going to do yield curve control, but I also agree with your sentiment around kind of how taper is developing this time around. And I think that, you know, Clarida, maybe more so was interesting last week was the minutes and the reaction to the minutes in the sense that we obviously all saw the headlines that they were going to discuss taper as, you know, if there was continued rapid progress in the economy. But I think that there was two kind of messages that came from that. One is, we began to see all of the conditionality required for the Fed to kind of change policy. And I think that speaks to their reaction function more generally. And then two is, you know, the market kind of the next day pretty much faded its entire move on the reaction to the headline. And I think that we're kind of getting to this point where taper is turning into a dovish catalyst, not that it's not going to happen, but we're getting to the point where it's so inevitable that the surprise element can come on the dovish side in terms of either the size, 
the calibration, the sequencing, as in we're getting to a point where the Fed is going to be like, okay, by the time they taper, the market's going to be begging for it already because it's going to be, not only is it going to be ridiculously late, but it's going to be at a point where like we've all expected it for so long. And then once they do it, how they do it will be kind of what matters. And I think we're that in that inflection point right now. If they pass a $3 trillion reconciliation bill this year in October, there is a chance that I think there's a very strong chance that you try to sell that many bonds on top of you know where the Fed is with QE for over the next 12 months. That gets you in the yield. Like in other words, politicians for the first time are spending so much money relative to the last cycle where you had gridlock that this time the, the threat of the, of the Fed getting forced into yield curve control because of reckless spending is very, very high because of the amount of the budget that's actually going toward interest, you know, between eight and 10% now. With low interest rates. So 100 bips up, you're up near like 18% of the budget that's an interest. Yield curve control comes into the picture with a runaway spending plan, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's two parts to this. I think one is that the Fed will probably be at a point where they want to actually engineer some form of crowding out. I mean, we've seen this already in terms of their language on mortgage-backed securities, where we've seen Rosengren, Bostich, even Kaplan talk about why are we buying $40 billion a month mortgage-backed securities when the housing market's on absolute fire. And I think that obviously it's a reasonable point, but I think that that kind of sets the stage for something else in the sense that the Fed is going to be cognizant of you know how durable these policies can be on the financial side so that they can have their proper economic benefits. I guess my point only to that would be if you know, if there is some form of crowding out to materialize more so in the back half of this year, early next, I don't think from a Fed perspective, that would be entirely unwelcome. And then the other side of it is, you know, I think it's important to think about Fed policy relative to where the economy will be. Kind of going back to 2013, when the Fed tapered, or, you know, we had the taper tantrum, the Fed was still was tapering in a negative output gap, which means there was still slack in the economy, right? The Fed this time is going to taper, according to the CBO, the, the output gap will probably evaporate by the over the summer. The Fed is going to taper well after that. So the Fed is going to not is not raising rates. It's just tapering emergency balance sheet programs at a time when the economy is basically creating more than it can supply. That is also an important guidepost this time around. So yes, you'll have these financial frictions between how much the market can digest, but relative to the economy, the Fed's actually not withdrawing that much, even when when it eventually or inevitably tapers. So they really are showing us that they have learned. We kind of see how the Fed has developed over the last 10, 15 years. And it does appear that they have learned from the 2013 taper tantrum, that they're really giving a ton of leeway to the market, to the participants. They're telling them exactly what they're looking at, and they're not going to surprise the market at all. And they're almost going to wait too long so that everybody's ready and happy for that moment. I'd also add, Larry, on the fiscal side, we have to see A, how big it is, B, how much of it is paid for, and C, when does the money get deployed? Because unlike the stimulus, which we saw, which was basically sugar high for everybody at once, the $3 trillion or whatever it is, is really going to be spent over 10 years. So we're looking at a much more gradual injection into the economy. So it, it is a little bit easier to deal with on the monetary side as a response to the fiscal side. Moving on a little bit to inflation, John, can you just give us a high level overview as to how you see this going and what we're seeing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, the last obviously CPI number we'll get was obviously noteworthy in the sense that we've kind of in this re-rating of where we thought inflation would be as in like going back, you know, beginning of January, we were like, okay, we're going to have these mechanical factors that are going to lead to a temporary rise in prices, but it'll be really quick and it'll be a one-off. And we've seen that, you know, in the past, especially over the last 10 years. And I think that what the you know, April CPI number did was it's made us think that one, that the transitory or whatever forces that are driving inflation are higher than we thought. And two is that they're going to last longer than we thought. So I think, you know, the market is now kind of in this re-rate of dealing with, okay, transitory at a higher level end up for a longer period of time. And I think going forward, especially from the Fed's perspective, I think the path through the data is probably that these supply dynamics, bottlenecks, pockets of excess demand probably continue for the rest of the year. And then they run into meaningful base effects that pop them up this year, next year. And I think now the question is, is how does the Fed define transitory? Because for a lot of the year, transitory equaled a few months and transitory equaled, well, by the end of Labor Day, all this stuff will be gone. And, you know, kind of looking where we are now, it's very unlikely that the transitory or inflationary factors that have persisted over the past couple of months and will certainly persist over the summer are just going to disappear at Labor Day. So I think, you know, from a Fed perspective, it'll be very important when they say, when you hear people like Waller talking about these things could last into 2022, and that would still be consistent with transitory. I think that coming from a Powell, Clara to Brainerd figure will only add more. But, you know, kind of looking at the path of the data is we're in this world because of how robust fiscal policy was, we basically had a supply side recession without demand participating. So right now, the supply side is putting out pretty much all the fires it faced and is facing pretty severe limitations. And then, you know, kind of going forward as the supply side reacts, we also have to factor in that we're probably going, given the how big the excess stock of savings is, is that we're going to be in a, probably a new higher demand environment that probably means the floor of where inflation can go is much higher than it was last cycle. So I think, you know, combining those two things is one is how does the Fed define transitory? And then two is I would expect that inflation is just much more volatile this cycle, given that nominal growth is going to be higher and policies on balance can be much more accommodating. Larry, do you have any responses or things to add to that? To me, there's like going to be seven stages to this. We just went through the first stage where we had some inflation that was in response to supply chains, in response to the fiscal plan. But remember, we just had pretty historic, crazy inflation in terms of core CPI, CPI with India in a horrific, you know, lockdown, COVID mess. Europe was in a COVID mess lockdown the last like two, three months. So think about like this inflation game is just starting. The, the rest of the world, you're talking about 65 trillion of GDP. GDP outside of the United States that has been in over lockdown. The U.S. is best in class in terms of vaccine, best in class in terms of economic rebound. Now we're going to have this global side. India cases are coming down. The euro is breaking out today. It's breaking out of a, a massive uh, down channel. We're going to have you know much better vaccine distribution globally. So that 64 trillion outside of the United States of GDP is going to get a lot more inflationary support. So whatever we've seen in inflation so far. Has, has not even had that to play. In other words, that's the next round of inflation. So if you look at the way the markets are digesting this, we have had five-year, five-year forwards roll over back to the 100-day. That's important. To me, that's a buy zone. If you look, they bounced off there 12 times over the last year. 
But five-year, five-year fours on the 100-day, they bounced off the 100-day 12 times over the last year. And so inflation expectations to me are just resting. The U.S. growth story has slowed down, but the global story is picking up. To me, that's the dollar bust. You are saying the same thing, right? Like we've seen the supply side come. And now both of you in a different way are talking about the demand side and what that's going to do. I want to get into commodities uh, after this one question, because obviously inflation and weak dollar all feed into a commodity story. But before we do that, let's just one question on the Fed. Is the explosion in ON reverse repo a sign that the financial system cannot accommodate all the Fed reserve treasury purchases? The answer is kind of yes, but I think another part of it is that we're a lot of the overnight repo also has to do with where we are in the TGA drawdown. And, you know, since general account, right, exactly. That's parked at the Fed. So that drawdown has been happening, you know, pretty much since February. So the normalization that was, I think it peaked at like one six, uh, one seven trillion. So that drawdown has had a lot of effects on kind of, you know, where excess liquidity is. And yes, you know, obviously where we are, you know, the Fed will have to deal with kind of the repercussions of not extending the SLR and things like that. But, you know, I I, I don't think it's a worry in terms of the, you know, where, like how the scope is for the Fed to, you know, continue buying treasuries. I think a lot of it speaks to the TGA drawdown, but, you know, it is a thing when there's a lot of liquidity in the system and the Fed is basically asked for forced buyers that, you know, there will need to be probably some sort of regulatory relief to make sure that banks can also accommodate it, especially as, as you said, Larry, issuance isn't going down anytime soon. So I want to get into commodities in general, because we talked about inflation, obviously very bullish sign for commodities. We talked about a weaker dollar, also a bullish sign for commodities. And then I would say the third leg of that stool is real rates and what happens there. But basically, if you have all three of those things, you could tell a story, at least for precious metals, that you're going to have a huge run up because you have all the bullish factors there. Is that what you guys are seeing right now? Well, I'd say first and foremost, and to me, there's like a cycle to, and we've seen this in credit markets. When credit markets start to reopen, the, the higher quality credits do well first. And then slowly but surely, as the credit market matures for a cycle, you get to the point where triple C's are outperforming, right? And so the tertiary parts of the market are usually the last, and sometimes they're the best trades. And so what we're doing at the Bear Trap Support is we've structured the portfolio over the last year where we were heavy gold and silver a year ago. Worked our way in the third, fourth quarter, third, fourth quarters of overweight oil and the oil names, copper. And now we've started to move into some of the tertiary areas like uranium, unloved commodities, coal. And so I'm convinced, you know, with this next move in the dollar and with the global recovery, this ESG dynamic around commodities, where we've had, if you talk to bankers, they're all saying the same thing, you're like whether it's a West Coast banker, East Coast, and it's just the amount of capital that's been taken out of some of these ESG companies that don't qualify in the coal space and other parts. Bankers around the country have churned away a lot of financing. And so that's been suppressing the normal with a commodity cycle. As, as we grow, what happens over the last like decade, you know, Fed's, Fed's accommodative. So we have this immediate response in capital markets, which open up and then money comes back into CapEx. Here, that whole thing's been blocked. And so that's why coal, uranium, copper, silver, platinum, you're really just in the middle innings here. And you just the ability of companies to find 
finance themselves and then to also to reach out and, and do capex and, and investments that's all been clogged up for like 18 months you know china's trying to control commodities because they see all these accounts all these people trying to front run this the pboc and they're front run china china is the biggest commodity producer on the earth and they don't like it when a bunch of speculators are front running them so that's why we're having this little pullback in inflation expectations because china's out there flexing their muscles around controlling the market but the real supply problem for commodities is like 12 to 18 months out and and it's a real big big problem and and, and as the global economy recovers we're going to be massively undersupplied especially in, in, in the coal space and uranium but john any thoughts from you i know you had some, some thoughts on em and commodities yeah i mean i think that there is this element of this you know this twin driver to commodities where you have a cyclical dynamic and a structural dynamic one on the cyclical side you know we have in the midst of this extremely robust recovery that is on the back of like 10 years of underinvestment pretty much across the board either in copper or oil oil also because of you know natural factors like depletion rates etc and then on the structural side like things like copper are now finding themselves kind of in the headlines of you know this global green movement especially Especially as the electric vehicle transition seems to be happening a lot quicker now. And those are obviously a lot more copper intensive than other cars. So I think that like there are these two things that have kind of all happened at once where the structural story changed mostly on the back of green, but also on the back of, you know, probably higher levels of demand. And then two is that, you know, we were in a very fast, quick economic recovery that the supply side really hasn't been able to handle that well. You know, I think that's, you know, kind of set the backdrop for where we are and, you know, maybe where we, you know, where we were talking about with the dollar is only, you know, the third thing that kind of gives this a general push. I, w- I would just say, though, that, you know, I think that within the commodity space, you know, it's it's easy to be constructive in general. There really are idiosyncratic stories within all of them. And especially looking now, you know, China kind of trying to break the back of the rally a little bit. You know, it's it's important to show like which ones they can really hamper and which ones they can. Like, you'll see that more so with things like iron ore versus crude oil things like that. So that's the only thing I would add. There's a question here that you guys have kind of both touched on a little bit, but I do want to ask it. If you look at the copper gold ratio versus 10 year and the chart, it appears that commodities more broadly, but copper in particular may be peaking. China seems to be in a self tightening phase and talking down commodities and M2 in the US is starting to turn down. With these things happening, is it still possible for copper to rally further? What factors would you be looking at to change your mind that we are still in a commodities bull market? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great point. And that's whenever you have the early stage of a bull market, you always have this like consolidation digestion period. It's just natural. This is just completely natural. This is a new bull market. We're undersupplied. We went through two horrific commodity bear markets in 2016, 2000, really three, 2016, 2018, 2020. So this is just starting. It, it does appear that, you know, China's credit impulses, is, you know, nobody can perfectly judge that, but it's clearly rolled over. And that's a big part of it. But at the end of the day, there's just not enough copper out there. So we're going to have a massive copper shortage in like 12 to 18 months, regardless of these kind of like pits and stops. This China thing is just a lot of gamesmanship. If you're China, you're the biggest commodity buyer in the world and you're seeing a, you know commodity prices go crazy, you're going to want some type of consolidation period, right? Because they're a, they're a buyer. They're probably like Goldman Sachs. They're probably talking it down to buy it. You know, so I, I don't buy into like, this is the end of the commodity cycle because China's like, I, I think this is just China's looking at 
their copper demand cycle that, that they're going to need for their country, for infrastructure, for electric vehicles and the like. And they just look at the natural supply of copper around the world in a post-COVID world, in an ESG world, and they don't like what they see. So they're, they're trying to put some brakes on this, uh, you know, almost like putting out speed bumps. Kind of sounds like the lumber story when it was at 600 and it was all-time highs and everyone was saying can't be there, but there was a real supply and demand equation there. And then, you know, we see it at 1400, which is just not consistent with any historical trends that it's actually gone through. But John, do you have anything to add on the copper story and that question? Yeah. And I I think it does hit on like a really big question in the market right now is kind of judging this China tightening phase. I kind of have like, I'm more in the Larry camp and, you know, less in the consensus camp and judging kind of China's policy approach right now. I think that China right now is basically the US in 2011, but without the austerity. So the US in 2011 was basically the China's going to lift all boats. We don't really have to do anything. We can kind of clean up after 2009. And that's a little bit where China is right now, where it's like they're going to calibrate their domestic policy posture relative to how much aggregate demand they're importing from the rest of the world. And because the US, even Europe, even Australia, even places like Japan, like have actual meaningful, robust fiscal programs, they're importing a lot of demand. I mean, we've seen that in a blowout in their trade surpluses, their current account surpluses, where China's basically being allowed to kind of clean up a lot of their excesses without having a growth sacrifice. And I think that's maybe like a good nuanced lens to kind of look at their actions where it's not really about saying like, oh, growth's gone too far too fast. In fact, if you look at like any like corporate commentary on what's going on in China versus like the headline macro factors, you'd think they're two like totally different worlds where like business travels higher in China now than it was in 2019. Like every corporate says China's booming. So yeah, maybe eight and a half percent growth this year is where estimates were like, maybe that doesn't get hit. But it's not going to be sub seven. And I think that, you know, looking at their form of policy tightening, I think it's much more important to look at it in the context of the global picture, not just the local. So China has become the most responsible global economy and taken advantage of this of this little COVID window opportunity to clean up and do the quote unquote right thing. It's what you guys are saying. (laughs) It's probably why dollar China is going lower. Well, I think we covered all the issues that we did set out to cover today. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks, Larry. And we'll talk to everyone soon.